another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Financial Conduct Authority and MACRIS. The citation for this case is 2017 UKSC 19. And we begin with a fairly simple question. How much information would be required to be able to identify you? For example, if I describe the person I am currently thinking of as an elderly woman, then that could be a lot of people. But if I describe them as the Queen of England, then you would know straight away that I'm talking about Elizabeth II. This sounds more like a game of 20 questions than anything else, but it is essentially the problem that the Supreme Court faced in this case. The person involved was Mr Macris, and he was formerly the Chief Investment Officer, or CIO, of the bank JP Morgan Chase. Back in 2012, he was responsible for a group of investment instruments called the Synthetic Credit Portfolio, but due to a number of factors including a high-risk strategy, poor management and a failure to respond to the weak performance, meant that in the end the total losses on the portfolio amounted to $6.2 billion. The Financial Conduct Authority, who were responsible for regulating the financial markets in the UK, got involved and carried out a full investigation They then went on to agree a settlement with the bank so that they had to pay a penalty of more than £137 million. Part of the regulatory regime governing these penalty payments is that the FCA has to provide three successive notices to the firm under investigation that goes into detail about the investigation as well as the reasons for the notice. However, in circumstances like this where a settlement is agreed before any of the notices are served, it is common practice to make all three so that they are identical and then serve them simultaneously. With regards to the synthetic credit portfolio, this happened on the 18th of September 2013. It is at this point where our game of 20 questions comes into play. When the notice contains information that discredits particular individuals who are not subject to the settlement, Section 393 of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000 makes it clear that those people should not suffer unfair prejudice as a result of the notice. If the notice does identify a particular person, then they should be given a copy of the notice so that they can make representations to the FCA and potentially go to the upper tribunal regarding it. Now in this particular notice, Macris was not identified directly either by name or by job title. Nevertheless, a number of references were made to CIO London Management, and so the question is whether this was close enough to identify him, given that he was not served with a copy of the notice, nor given an opportunity to make representations. With this in mind, Macris brought a case before the upper tribunal who upheld his claim, because any reader who has enough experience in this area would recognise that CIO London Management refers to Macris by dint of him being the most senior person involved. When the case moved up the court hierarchy, the Court of Appeal agreed with the overall result that Macris was identifiable from the notice, but applied a more general test. They drew inspiration from tort law, and in particular the law on defamation, This meant that looking at the notice alongside other relevant information that is publicly available, people who operate in the same circles as Macris would be able to identify him. The FCA appealed to the Supreme Court and the five justices who heard the case were divided on the matter by 4-1 to in favour of the FCA. 
This presents us with a great opportunity to look at the case from both sides. Lord Sumption gave the lead judgment and began by holding that a person is identified for the purposes of section 393 if, quote, he is identified by name or by a synonym for him, such as his office or job title, end quote. The reference, therefore, has to be to one person, and they have to be identifiable either from the notice itself or alternatively through information that is publicly available. However, that public information can only be used as an interpretive aid for the language that is actually used in the notice. This approach may at first appear a little restrictive, but in fact makes a lot of sense because the FCA don't know every single piece of information that is available about any particular person, and it would make their job too burdensome if they had to try and find out before issuing any notice. In his judgement, Lord Newberger agreed with this point and also added that if section 393 was given a wide interpretation, then it could cause a lot more cases like this one to be taken to the courts, and the actual judgments would become much more open and subjective. Before we take a look at the dissenting judgments, it is worth mentioning that the Supreme Court also picked up on the comparison that the Court of Appeal drew between this case and the law on defamation. They disagreed with the idea that a comparison could be usefully made in this instance, because the two areas of law have different purposes. Defamation allows a person to defend their reputation, while here the aim is to allow a person to make representations to the FCA. I would add to this and also point out that the form that the law is in makes a difference too. Section 393 is codified in the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000, and if the government had wanted it to be a direct reflection of the law on defamation, they could have done so at the time. Furthermore, the intended audience for the notice is the public at large, rather than just the people who work within a particular industry. This point, however, is where Lord Wilson begins his dissent in this case. In order to try and gauge the target audience, you have to think about who would take note if something bad was said about you in the notice. Members of the public may have access to the notice, but the chances are they won't really care what is said about any given individual, and even if they did care, there isn't much that they can do about it. On the other hand, people who are involved in the same type of work as you may reconsider their opinion of you, not hire you for jobs or decide not to work alongside you. In other words, it can have a serious adverse effect amongst this audience. The test that Lord Wilson, and indeed Lord Mance, would have applied is much closer to that for defamation, and has a much broader stance in relation to the role of information that is publicly available and is extrinsic to the notice. In applying this rule, Lord Wilson felt that Macris was identifiable, whereas Lord Mance concluded that this was too much of a stretch, and so he ended up agreeing with the majority for the final 4-1 to one result. When thinking about this case, we have to be careful about jumping to conclusions about whether one side or another is right, because there are serious consequences depending on how we choose. If we take a wide approach to section 393, then it has the potential to create a huge amount of work for the FCA, but if we take a more narrow approach, as the majority in this case did, then it leaves people like Macris open to criticism from the FCA without any possible recourse available. I do think that the best place to start is by looking at the purpose of section 393 so that we can apply this to our interpretation. 
Lord Sumption was right when he suggested that the final legislative aim is to allow people who are named in the notice to make representations to the FCA. However, we do have to remember that in the Act this is called a warning notice, and so there is a clear indication that if an individual receives such a notice, then they have done something wrong. Thus, there is some way in which the notice itself can have a potentially defamatory effect, and this is not a factor we should discount lightly. If we do take an approach that is accepting of this link with defamation, then we also have to face up to the criticism put forward by Lord Sumption and Newberger that it will create more work for the FCA and produce some unusual results because of the subjective nature of the investigation. The first point to make on this is that the justices are speculating here. Nobody truly knows what the consequences of such a decision are, and unless you are pretty certain, this is not a good reason to avoid making a judgement. Nevertheless, if we do take the critique at face value, then that doesn't necessarily have to stop us in our tracks. If we establish a test that is sensible in the way that it thinks about identity, then it is possible to avoid ridiculous situations where an individual claims that they could be identified because of a very thin strand that links them to the notice. This has the dual effect of creating a legal regime that protects the reputation of those who have legitimately been adversely affected by the relevant notice, and does not put the FCA on the defensive, so that they are afraid to issue notices in the first place. It may well be that applying such a test in relation to Macris might still mean he does not have a good claim because of the spurious connection between him and the notice to J.P. Morgan Chase. This matches up with the views of Lord Mance and would have set a solid precedent while also showing that this interpretation is not purely an attack on the FCA. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the UK Law Weekly podcast. I hope to be back next week with another case for you. Until then, thanks as well to bensound.com for providing the music. Remember to check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Marcus Cleaver. And if you get a chance to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, that is very much appreciated. Until next week, bye!